Luke 11, our gospel lesson tonight. We're going to talk a bit about prayer. And I have to admit that prayer has always been something I have struggled with. Uh, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I suspect uh, many of us, maybe most of us, have struggled with prayer. I can remember as a, as a child growing up in fairly conservative Christian circles that I was always being told to pray, but no one could ever really tell me why. They would just say, pray, 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 and read your Bible, and pray some more. And I remember as a, as a smart like high school student, as my youth pastor was giving us another talk about how we need to read our Bibles and pray, I raised my hand and said, you realize like none of us are actually doing that. <laughs> And, of course, that, like, killed the lesson, and I regret it to this day, because um, uh, it was very rude. Don't do that to me. Um, uh, but, but it's true. Like, there's this frustration with prayer. And, and maybe, maybe part of our frustration uh, is a sense that God's not really hearing us, or, or a sense that you've prayed for the same thing over and over again, year after year after year, and nothing has changed. Or perhaps there's a sin in our life that makes it hard to pray because we're ashamed and instead of confessing that sin, we just want to ignore that sin and that hinders us from actually being able to enter into the presence of God. Maybe we're just really tired and you you go to pray at night and you find yourself uh, falling asleep. Um, I have more than once found myself asleep in the middle of prayer. So when I read that passage about the disciples falling asleep as Jesus is praying, I have real sympathy for them because it happens to me uh, a lot. And it probably happens to you. Uh, Tonight we're going to take a peek, though, uh, into just a little bit about prayer and about what it is and and how it acts and what it means for us when when we pray and why it's such a good, good thing for us. It's healthy for us. And so as we unpack the passage, I really just want to break it down into three parts. The content of prayer, the, the attitude of prayer, and the assurance of prayer. The content, the attitude, and the assurance of prayer. Uh, The passage opens in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is the fifth time in Luke that he's mentioned that Jesus was praying. And it happens, according to the passage, that his disciples were with him. So Jesus is traveling about, he's ministering, he's praying, and often his disciples are either witnessing him pray, hearing him pray, or praying with him. And one of them asks a very um, obvious question, and yet it makes perfect sense. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Uh, Something about Jesus' prayers strikes, I think, these disciples as being special. Like Jesus is tapped into something with the Father that they're missing, and they want to know what that is. And so they point out what is the custom of the day. A rabbi, a teacher, would teach his followers how to pray. And John, the Baptist, taught his disciples. And now the disciples of Jesus, seeing that Jesus has something, some clue about prayer that they're missing, is asking him to tell them what it is. And I suspect that uh, he, he, they are expecting some sort of big secret. And what Jesus gives them, in fact are a series of little short phrases that seem so completely obvious. And yet, as we unpack them, we realize something very important as we unpack these words, that they're not as obvious as you might think they are. And they're really quite powerful. And so, in this first part then of the sermon, as we talk about the content, I really just want to break down the pieces. And we're going to walk through what they mean 
and how they fit together. So he says, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, beginning in verse 2, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. When you pray, say. Now, one disciple asks, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds actually with the plural you. When you all, when, when y'all, or yins, when, when y'all pray together, pr- say this. Now, that's a little different than what happens in Matthew. In Matthew's account, Jesus says something along the lines of, when you pray, say, uh, pray like this. Okay, And so one, in this passage, it's say these words, and it seems very specific. In Luke, it seems more broad and general. Use this as a pattern, or excuse me, in Matthew, use this as a pattern for prayer. And so you may or may not know this, but there's quite a lot of debate in the Christian world over this, whether we should recite the, apostles, or the, the um, Lord's Prayer together, or whether we shouldn't, or whether it's just a pattern. Uh, I think, uh, yes, to both. <laughs> I, I think Jesus wants us... He wants us praying together. And I, he wants us praying together, and I think it's very appropriate for us to actually use these simple words so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that we have to have elaborate words to convince God to do something for us. If I can just pray really well, God's going to answer my prayer. And I think these simple words tell us that really the words aren't as important as the intent behind the words. And we'll get into that some. So he says to him, say... Father, hallowed be your name. Uh, Father, the the word there is pater. It's the Greek father. It's similar to the the Hebrew word uh, or Aramaic word Abba, which we've talked about before in sermons that means father. And Jesus talks about, or excuse me, Paul in in Galatians talks about being able to call out to to God as our Abba father. And we've talked before about uh, that word Abba sometimes gets translated as the word daddy, as if it's a childish word. It's not a childish word. It's actually a mature word that an adult child uh, who has affection for his father uh, calls his father pater. It is an affectionate word. It's not a childish word. And so, so Jesus is telling his disciples something actually kind of new. We're used to this idea of Father. We're used to this idea of being able to approach Him as our Heavenly Father. But in the Jewish context, uh, the holiness of God, the otherness of God, is seen as being so above us, so, so out there, that the thought that we would approach Him in an intimate way is sort of a foreign thought. Uh, it might even be an offensive thought. But Jesus is saying to them, He is Father. And you can approach him in that way. And we see in the letters of Paul and others uh, in the New Testament that the Christians have learned this lesson. They refer to God as God the Father all the time. Not something necessarily done in, in Jewish sort of Old Testament practice. So we can address him as Father uh, who loves us, who cares for us. But he is also holy. Hallowed be your name. Um, I, I think the word order there is important. First, he's Father. But that doesn't make him less holy. We need to remember he's father, but we also need to remember that he is holy. And so when we come into his presence, what we're asking in this address, Father, may everyone consider your name as holy. Because when it comes to God and thinking about God and talking about God, his name, uh, the quality of his name and the character of his name and the holiness of his name says something about who he is. And so we do enter into the presence of Father who loves us. But he's a Father who, who desires and deserves respect. And so he is a loving Father that we need to pray, pay pop, proper respect to. 
and ask that others do the same. And so as we enter in, Father, uh, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Uh, when When we think about your kingdom come, it's easy for us, and I admit, as, as a child, I would think about these things. And, and I grew up in, in dispensational circles, and so we talked about things like the tribulation a lot. And everyone would talk about it in dispensational circles, like, this was awesome. Like, the tribulation's coming, that means Jesus is here. And I'm like, yeah, but it sounds really bad. And they're like, and then they would go on and they would say, and, you know, come Lord Jesus, come, and, and which is something we would say, and I think it's appropriate to say. But in that context, I was thinking, yeah, but you're asking God, like, burn the world down first, and... Like, I just think maybe we should leave that alone. Um, um, and, and, and so I would get really nervous about this kingdom come. And so then I fell into this sort of weird dichotomy in my thinking where I would say, yeah, I really want God's kingdom to come. Because when God's kingdom comes, it's a sign that God is reigning among his people. And he's present with us. And holiness and goodness reign. And, 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 and wrong is set aside. And crazy politicians are no more. And, and like, it's normal again. It's, like, good again. And it's safe again. And so the kingdom of God is a good thing. And it's something we should be desiring. And yet, because of the context I was in, I would think, yeah, that's all really good. I don't want it to happen today. I'd like to, like, get through high school and get married before the world burns down. Um, so, so that was sort of my, my thinking as a child. But it also occurs to me then, though, that the kingdom of God really is our highest hope. That the salvation that we're, we're given, the, the atonement that was bought for us, the justification and the sanctification that is given to us freely is all about bringing us into this much larger kingdom of God. It's not just about our individual salvation. It's about what God wants to do throughout all of creation. And he's inviting us through his atonement and redemption. He's inviting us into that process of his kingdom coming. And so our first prayer should always be, our first request, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because we surely, surely need it. And so this is the heart of the Christian. And then the next phrase, another simple little request, give us each day our daily bread. I think Matthew says, give us this day our daily bread. It's a simple request for, for sustenance, our daily needs. Like, it's not really very Christian or, or holy to say, well, I really don't need anything. I'm just going to trust in God. That's really not going to take you very far. Uh, you'll probably go hungry. Jesus actually says it's really appropriate to ask God for material sustenance. It's really appropriate. But that little phrase, each day, is a clue that that trust needs to be day by day. Because sometimes we ask God for material sustenance so that we can just stop worrying about it. Like, God, can I please just win the lottery that I never play? Because then I'll be set for life and I don't have to worry anymore. And there's something about earthly security. There's something about earthly security um, that actually separates us from trust, right? Separates us from the love of God and, and the connection of having to trust in him daily. And so the prayer is not just provide us with sustenance but provide us with the, with the wisdom to ask for it every day, to put ourselves in a place of needing you every day. Uh, when I was in seminary, I went to class with like the most stereotypical Russian you have ever met. He was six foot six, pale skinned, black hair, blue eyes, spoke with a thick accent, and all of his front teeth were gold. 
He looked like something out of an old James Bond flick. He was an intimidating fellow. He was a Russian who grew up in Kazakhstan. I mean, like the Wild West of, of that part of the world. And he, I'm, I kid you not, this sounds like a movie. He was a gambler in the bars in Kazakhstan. And the reason why he had gold teeth is because he got in a fight one night in a bar and they knocked all his teeth out. And he's sitting in jail with all of his teeth knocked out. And he says, God, I'm sure he was speaking Russian. He says, God, if you're real, like I can't keep living this way. You got to get me out of this. And he becomes a Christian and he decides to be a pastor. And he comes to, to our seminary in Texas and he's He's, he's, he wants to be ordained and go back to Kazakhstan. And so in this Sunday school class we had, he got up and he was just talking about his life and his testimony. And it was, it was awesome, right? Like this guy is straight out of a movie, I'm telling you. And, and he's telling his testimony. And a couple things he said that were very telling. Someone asked him, like, what do you love about America? And how is your home country better than us? And he said, better than, better than the United States. It was a funny question. He said, uh, everything in the United States is better except the bread. Your bread is horrible. How do you eat this? <laughs> and so I don't know. It's the only bread I've ever had, but apparently it's really bad by, by Russian Kazakh standards. Um, and then someone asked him another question similar. How do you find it being a Christian in the United States? And he says, you know, when you're in Kazakhstan, if your car breaks down, you have to pray for a part you may not find the part. It may take weeks. It may take months. And then there's the issue of money. And are you going to have to bribe someone to get it? And he said, everything is a matter of faith. He says, in the United States, you pick up the yellow pages. And so even little things separate you from God. And I thought that is really, really powerful. And I think it, it goes to this point. That this prayer, these simple words, give us this day our daily bread, are reminding us. That our, our, our faith in Christ and our sustenance that we draw from him is a daily exercise. That we need him every day. And we need to be wise enough to know that. And so simple words with a powerful meaning. And then Jesus goes on and says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And in this we see a contrast. Uh, uh, Jesus is telling them, when you say this prayer... Uh, it's not, in this version, uh, in Luke, he's not saying, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive others, as if there's this correlation of God, you forgive our sins, and then we forgive others. He's making a point that even sinful people know how to forgive. So surely God the Father would forgive. So Father, forgive us our sins as even we sinful people try to forgive others. Uh, uh, so there's, it's a flowing from the lower to the higher here. We'll see that again uh, throughout this passage. There's this sense of starting with something simple and corrupt and then saying, but how much more will God do? Even we are sinful people who forgive. How much more will God do? Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then uh, we go on. And lead us not into temptation. Uh, I think the idea there is similar to what we see in James chapter 1, where James says that God does not tempt, and nor is he tempted. So it's not a request for God to not lead us to temptation, as if God would lead us to temptation. It is a request that's saying, Lord, lead us away from temptation. Lord, help us to run from temptation. Help us to flee 
from it. We see that repeated in several passages, that theme of calling upon the Lord to help us flee from temptation. So when we say, lead us not into temptation, we're asking, Lord, point us the other direction. Take us away from this. May we go somewhere else. And so we have here just this really, really simple prayer that encapsulates what we need on a daily basis from God. Just these simple, simple requests, but it encapsulates ultimately all that we need from him to live the godly life. And then we come to this parable after Jesus is done with this instruction. And he comes to this parable, which is actually supposed to be humorous. Uh, So we we read it, and I'll paraphrase it, uh, because I think it's funnier when I paraphrase it. Um, You have a friend, uh, you have a guy in town. He has a traveling buddy who showed up at midnight at his home. It's dark. It's the Middle East. It's hot in the desert. He probably travels at night to avoid the heat. He shows up late. He knocks on the door. Guess what? You don't have any bread in the house. And it's not like you can run to the 7-Eleven. In a little town like this, you make your own bread. Probably you were waiting to make new bread the next day, but he showed up. And according to hospitality customs, you have to feed him. You have to be a good host. But he shows up. You've got nothing. It reminds me of a story my, my wife likes to tell. When she was 12 years old and her parents had left one morning and gone somewhere, I think they maybe had, t- had were taking a little day trip and had left the kids home alone. And unexpectedly, relatives showed up. Now, we had this happen to us, and, and I love my wife, but some of her relatives, they show up out of the blue. Like, hey, knock at the door. Hey, I'm your cousin from Iowa, and, and we've never met, but we're here to visit. That's happened to us. So, so... So it happened to us on Christmas Day at her parents' house. Pulled up in a yellow semi-truck and said, hey, we're here. Who are you? It's Christmas Day. There's a pile of presents. Like, we're busy. Um, anyway, so, so these relatives, like, showed up at Beth's house when she was 12. And the, her parents weren't there. And so my 12-year-old, then 12-year-old wife, not my currently 12-year-old wife, my then, my then 12-year-old wife cooked to them all breakfast. So she, the 12-year-old, is cooking the adult unexpected guests breakfast. And to this day, when you get together, they're like, oh, do you remember that time, that great time we showed up to visit and how awesome that was? And Beth is like, yeah, I remember. It wasn't great. Um, I could tell you more stories about relatives who show up out of nowhere, um, but I won't. Uh, the, the point is, like, you, you, maybe you've been there. Like, you've panicked. Someone is there. Like, it's a last-minute thing. You've got no supplies. So you go to a neighbor's house. Can I borrow some bread? And he goes, and I, I picture a Middle Eastern house, and there's no glass windows, right? Everything's open. So he's standing outside, and he's like, hey, come out here. Like, I've got, yes, I need bread. He's yelling. He's in the street. And from inside, he says, go away. I'm in bed with the kids, as if like yelling is going to keep the kids asleep. I'm in bed with the kids, go away. Because it's the Middle East, they all sleep in the same room. And, and so they can't just, it's, it's kind of inconvenient to crawl out of bed, which is probably a mat on the floor, stumble over one another in the dark, and, and then go give bread to your friend. And so his friend is like, go away, I'm not going to do this. But he does it anyway. And he does it. And scripture tells us he does it because of the asker's impotence. Um, I almost said impotence. That's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, see, I'm in vacation mode. My wife will tell you, when I get in vacation mode, like crazy stuff comes out of my mouth. Um, uh, I'm trying to find the word now. I, I've completely lost my place. There it is. His impudence. His impudence. He is, it's a word that means shameless and bold. Uh, The thing about this particular Greek word is that it's only used here in the entire New Testament. And so nobody is certain 
what it means in sort of a New Testament context. They've looked at it in other Greek texts and, and, and had some debate. You'll find a lot of older translations of the Bible that use the word persistence. Um, but that's really not the right idea. Because if the word is persistence, it gives you the idea that the asker gets what he wants because he just stays and keeps begging. Right? He persistently asks. And that isn't the idea that Jesus is trying to convey. He's trying to convey an idea that under normal circumstances would actually be considered rude. It would actually be considered rude. Because nobody likes to be barged in on in the middle of the night and woken up. My youngest daughter, Piper, and I ask her permission to tell this story. My youngest daughter, Piper, will sometimes get up at night. And she's very sweet. She's very kind about it. And she'll come in our room. And she only does this to her mother because I react badly when woken up from a dead sleep. She comes in. And she'll pat her mom. Pat, pat. Excuse me. I'm sorry to wake you, but I need to go to the bathroom. And so there's this very quiet, it's very gentle, and it's not very jarring. It's actually okay. That's not what's happening here. Like this guy's shouting at the top of his lungs, come out. It's impudent. It's, it's shameless. It's bold. And Jesus' point is that the attitude of prayer is an attitude of boldness that under normal circumstances would be considered rude to go impudently and shamelessly into the presence of God and say, Lord, I need help, would be considered rude except that he is God the Father who loves us. And it's not rude. And it's not out of place to ask boldly and with confidence. And it's this prayer that God hears. And he hears it. He hears it. For a couple of different reasons. One, when we go boldly into the presence of God to pray, it indicates that we have come to a point where we realize He is our only hope. Going boldly to God is what happens when we run out of other opportunities, when we run out of other resolutions to our problems. And so we go boldly out of a sense of desperation, and we come to a place where we realize that He's the only hope. And so He wants us to pray boldly. Because it shows, it shows us that we've come to a place of reliance upon him. And it also then indicates our confidence in him. This first friend who's asking for the bread, he goes to his buddy who's asleep in bed because he knows that guy has bread. And he knows that if he asks obnoxiously enough, the friend may be mad at him, but he will come through for him. So his boldness is rewarded. Now, Jesus is not saying that God is this friend who's, who, that God is like this friend who's only answering your request because it's bold. He's making a point that is connected to the idea of God as Father. He wants you to come confidently into his presence, and it may otherwise seem rude because why would a holy and righteous and good God give a rip about what happens in my life? It's not arrogant to ask because God is our Father, and He wants to provide. And so then we go to the last portion of this text, the assurance of prayer. The, insur- the assurance of prayer. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. There's this repetition of asking, seeking, and knocking. And Jesus uses these three words um, as different ways to talk about inquiry. And what he means here by this repetition is that when you come to God, 
You will ask, you will seek, you will knock, you will receive, you will receive, you will receive. This three-part repetition, you will receive, you will receive, you will receive. There's an assurance there, not that you'll get everything you ask for, but that you will get everything that is good for you and everything that you need and everything that he wants to supply to you to accomplish what he has for you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And there's the the bottom line. Jesus is looking at his disciples who have sensed that there is something in Jesus' prayer that connects him to God in a way that they have not yet experienced. And he's telling them, it's because you have to view God and receive him as Father and view him in that light. And when you view him as Father, you can go to him with any request. And when you go to him with any request, he will give you what is good for you. He is not going to punish you for asking. He is not going to deride you and make you feel stupid for asking. He wants to give you what is good. And so prayer is a laborious thing, isn't it? It really is sometimes. You wonder if it's any good at all. And I think it's because we view prayer too often. Too often. And and maybe I'm only speaking for myself. But I think I view it simply as another laundry list thing I have to do. Instead of a conversation with a father who wants to hear what's going on in my life. Wants me to say it wants me to express it, wants me to demonstrate that I actually do trust him, that I actually do believe him when he says he's fathered, when he says I'm forgiven, when he says there's been grace given to me. Prayer is how we we indicate that we accept that. And so I want to encourage you tonight to view your prayer life as a conversation with a father, a father who really wants you to be bold enough and brave enough to come to him with anything. And it doesn't need to be fancy. You, you know, one of, the, one of the great things about the prayers we say in our liturgy is they're really powerful and really thoughtful. One of the downsides is when you read those kind of prayers enough, you may fall into the trap of thinking that every prayer you pray has to sound like that. It really doesn't. Some of the, some of the most powerful prayers that I've ever experienced in my life were simple one or two word askings because I was in a desperate place. And I didn't even have the right words to say. And maybe you've been there. So the words, the words matter. But it's what, what's behind the words that matter most. And so Jesus gives us a simple formula, a simple model that answers all that we need from him. And so we pray. We pray because it's a gift. We pray because it's a blessing.